What's up, Swamp Folk? I hope you're ready for today's story. It's the epitome of camping trips gone wrong and definitely on the darker side. So nothing we aren't used to on this channel by now, but it may have some of you thinking twice about where you spend your next family outing. Today, we're heading to the Maquoketa Cave State Park in Iowa. It's 370 acres, including a six-mile hiking trail which connects all 13 of the park's caves. While it is described as breathtaking, the tragedies that have taken place here are absolutely heartbreaking, senseless, and downright perplexing. Some of you may remember the headlines as it was fairly recent that this went down, but I'm talking about the grisly murders that claimed the lives of three family members. Though, the Maquoketa Cave State Park murders are not what state officials would call quote-unquote unsolved, the case at times definitely feels incomplete. Important information has yet to be released, some of which may never be made public despite its relevance to fully understanding what may have actually happened here. What happened to the alleged killer? They too would later be found dead, and upon learning the attacker's identity, the mystery would only deepen, and the big question has still remained. Why? Why did any of this happen? Well, I'm going to attempt to tell you why. First, we need to start with the Schmidt family. The Schmidt family was from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 60 miles west of Maquoketa Cave State Park. Before moving to Iowa in 2018, Tyler Schmidt was an IT software engineer in Lawrence, Kansas. Sarah Schmidt, wife and mother, worked at Cedar Falls Public Library. The two met when fate brought them together for a monarch butterfly project where they quickly found that they had much in common, like the fact that they were both huge Jayhawk fans. They went on to get married and have two beautiful children. Lula was six years old and Arlo was nine when the family made their fateful trip to the Maquoketa Cave State Park, but in July 2022. What should have been a lovely vacation full of cherished memories soon turned into a complete nightmare when the unthinkable happened on July 22nd. A seemingly unprovoked, brutal attack left Arlo Schmidt as the only survivor. When news of this case first broke, it was not reported where the young boy was at the time of the murders, but authorities and Arlo himself later confirmed he was also inside of the tent with his family. The unthinkable happened in the early morning hours. Nine-year-old Arlo Schmidt woke up to his family being attacked in their tent. There was screaming, there was blood, and Arlo knew his parents were severely hurt. Miraculously, the young boy managed to escape the slaughter while the attack was still taking place. Wearing only one shoe, he ran 75 yards through the grass to the closest campsite, screaming for help all the while. Cecilia Sherwin, her husband and her son were camping near the Schmidt family on that Friday morning, and Cecilia recalled hearing screams followed by two gunshots. As they went to investigate, a young boy ran up to them screaming that something had happened to his parents. A man in black had shot his family, and that's when she called 911. For several months, the public had no idea what transpired on that phone call. Then, through the Freedom of Information Act in January 2023, the 911 call was made public. It begins with Cecilia Sherwin saying, Shooting! Shooting! and adding that she was with a young boy who said that his parents were shot and there was blood. Arlo can also be heard saying, I don't know if they were shot, but it was scary. 
Jackson County 911, where's your emergency? Markatitsa Caves. Uh, Markatitsa Caves? Yeah. Okay, what's going on out there? Shooting, shooting. Cecilia would then make a correction to the dispatcher, who then phoned the park rangers before returning her attention to Cecilia. She asked the panicked woman if she could speak directly to Arlo in an attempt to learn more. When asked, Arlo said, I woke up and saw someone in black clothes. They had a weapon and my sister was screaming. The dispatcher asked where his dad was and after a pause, the boy replied, I think they were hurt before repeating that the assailant had a small gun and wore all black clothing. The phone is then returned to Cecilia, and a few moments later, she could be heard asking Arlo, Honey, are you okay? What's wrong? Most of the conversation is pretty clear, but there is a point where the reception begins to drop out a bit, some words are completely unintelligible, and if you listen carefully, you can hear Cecilia state the following, He, Arlo, was screaming up there in the tent, and we heard shots, and then it goes unintelligible. He was screaming up there in the tent, but nobody would come out. Nobody would come out, and so we unintelligible towards the entrance, and so we unintelligible him away. Obviously, there's some red flags in that statement. Did Arlo run to the Sherwins campsite, or did the Sherwins, possibly Cecilia, approach the smidge tent and take Arlo away? Based on the two conflicting reports, there's no telling what actually went on. A park ranger arrived about 23 minutes after the 911 call was initiated. Arlo stated that he heard gunshots and Cecilia would later confirm with police and reporters that she heard yelling followed by two gunshots just before Arlo ran to their campsite. Again, I don't know why she told the police something different on the phone, but I mean, maybe it was just the heat of the moment, maybe people were just freaked out, it's kind of hard to say. Authorities arrived at a horrific scene. Approximately 25 minutes after receiving the 911 call, they discovered three bodies, a family from Cedar Falls, Iowa, Tyler and Sarah Smid, both age 42, and their six-year-old daughter Lula were all deceased inside their tent. Authorities immediately closed the park and a nearby children's camp, Camp Shalom, was evacuated and closed until further notice. While police verified the registered camper's whereabouts, all visitors were accounted for except for 23-year-old Anthony Sherwin, the son of the woman who first called 911. Several hours later, about a mile away from the gruesome murder scene, a fourth body was discovered. The missing camper, Anthony Sherwin, had turned a gun on himself. When the investigation first began, Cecilia and her husband did not know their son was dead or that he was the suspect police were searching for. It was not until August 4th that Mitch Mordvet, assistant director with the Iowa Department of Safety, released a statement confirming that Anthony Sherwin was indeed the murderer. It states, the known facts and circumstances and all evidence collected to this point substantiate that Sherwin was the perpetrator of the homicides and acted alone. Okay, what the heck? So what exactly did this investigation entail? Um, unfortunately, we really don't know. We, we don't know what specific facts or evidence they are referring to. We only know what bits we can piece together from interviews with the press. We don't know what led up to this, what, what precipitated it, Mortved said. Adding, the investigation has not revealed any early interaction between Schmidt family and the perpetrator. Sarah Schmidt's brother, Adam Morehouse, told Our Quad Cities, All we know is that this was completely random. Nobody in either's family knew anybody. We didn't know the suspect. The suspect didn't know us. We don't know of any interaction that occurred. It was simply 
This individual woke up that morning and decided to pick a tent, walk into that tent where my sister and her family were sleeping, and they never even got the chance to wake up. Autopsies were performed over the next few days following the start of the investigation, and the results were shocking to say the least. It was discovered that Tyler had been stabbed and shot while Sarah only suffered from stab wounds, but Lola was strangled and shot. The Smid's small family community was shaken and saddened by the news, but today the couple is remembered as being dedicated to their family and loved ones. Colleagues said Tyler and Sarah had great hearts for the community, and staffers from Lula's school shared the young girl's tendency to have bright, curious nature. To this day, the only thing connecting the Smid family to Anthony Sherwin was the fact that their families happened to be camping near each other one night at the same time. Now, we need to talk a little bit about the suspect here. I don't like to give too much credence or too much attention to them, but this is rather important for this story. Anthony Orlando Sherwin was 23 years old and from La Vista, Nebraska, where he lived in an apartment complex with his parents, Cecilia and Joe Sherwin. The three of them had been on a camping trip for quite a few days before arriving at the caves on Thursday, July 21st. Upon arrival, the family set up the tent for themselves and one for Anthony. During the days following the death of her son, Cecilia Sherwin told the Omaha World Herald that the family refused to believe the news. Despite police reports, the Sherwins believed their son is innocent and a victim of homicide too. They claimed Anthony showed no signs of distress and made no indications that he would wish to hurt anyone or himself. La Vista Police Chief Bob Lawson told the newspaper that Anthony Sherwin had no history of criminal conduct, but he was very familiar with guns. Investigative sources told the Des Moines Register that Sherwin allegedly used a ghost gun in the shootings and on himself. According to CBS News, ghost guns are unregistered and untraceable homemade weapons that can be made with a 3D printer or assembled from a kit. The ATF has stated that these are significantly contributing to a rise in gun violence. Ghost guns can be produced for less than $200 and the average selling price as of April 2022 would be around $500 or less. Could Anthony have been some sort of gun fanatic? Of course. But, you know, you can't prove it. The Sherwin family initially advised police that they had brought a concealed weapon with them. They had a permit for it, but the gun itself was missing when the officials arrived, which was a bit strange, obviously. Police later determined that Anthony removed the gun from the secure case and made his way to the neighboring campsite with it. Later, his parents released an email to the Des Moines Register stating, He built his own weapon. She went on to explain that they hadn't wanted him to purchase a gun, but they felt building one was a sensible idea given the level of crime around the Nebraska home. Now, before we move on to the exact statement the mother gave, it is a bit weird to encourage somebody to build a gun but not buy a gun. You know, I understand that sensibilities can be different in different areas of the country and the world even, but that's just a, I don't know, maybe I'm just thinking about it too much, but it just seems a bit strange to like encourage somebody to build a gun, especially an illegal gun, rather than just buying a legal one, especially as a parent. The quote that she gave was, He only had an interest in guns for a few months before he grew tired of it. By the time we even took our trip, he told us he was going to get rid of them. We were relieved as we never owned a gun of any kind before this year. We only had one in the car on the trip. He didn't have a fascination as much as it was a challenge to build it, she wrote. 
She also maintained her belief in his innocent, adding, We are devastated by all of this and still believe our son was murdered. He had too much to live for to throw it all away like this. We think Anthony might have sensed trouble, grabbed the gun for safety. We refuse to believe the news. We are deeply saddened as he had so much to live for and gave us no indication that anything was ever wrong. So, do you think there's any truth to what Cecilia is saying? Is it possible that Anthony wasn't the killer after all? For what it's worth, the police certainly believe he's responsible. I suppose it depends on how much you're willing to trust their word. It is interesting that none of the evidence has ever been made public, though, and according to the Sherwins, they haven't seen any evidence that suggests their son is guilty either. Now, there are alternative facts out there, as people would call them. Cecilia said her son was wearing green, not black, and she'd known this to be true because she'd handed out the last of the family's clean clothes the day before the shooting. She knew Anthony was wearing green shorts. Unfortunately, most of the Sherwin's requests for information had been denied or ignored. Her son's autopsy report was obtained independently, however, it only added to her overall confusion though. The original autopsy listed Anthony's clothing as being green. To the Sherwins, the clothing distinction is important because Arlo had been insistent that the person who killed his family was wearing black. But also, this is a nine-year-old who was entirely freaked the heck out in the middle of the night, hella dark. Can you really blame anybody for thinking that the person was wearing black because they likely only saw them in a silhouette? Another interesting discrepancy is that early reports state that the police found Anthony suffering from a single gunshot wound to the head, but according to Cecilia, her son sustained two gunshot wounds. She believes the first shot would have been debilitating and wonders how he would have managed to shoot himself again. The final unanswered question, the one that particularly pains the Sherwin family, is one that Cecilia believes could be easy to answer. Was the gun that her son supposedly used to end his life the same gun that was used in the shootings of the Smiths? In a recent inquiry, the couple asked the lead investigator whether a ballistics match had been made, but they did not receive an answer. Now, I do need to mention public record requests have been denied. In 2023, the Quad City Times also filed requests for public records under Iowa's Open Records Law and the Freedom of Information Act. The request sought incident reports, investigative documents, crime scene summaries, and autopsy reports. And it was denied just as the family's request had been. The only reply they keep receiving is the records you seek are not public. Debbie McClung, Strategic Communications Bureau Chief for the Office of the Commissioner with the Iowa Department of Public Safety, it's a freaking mouthful, stated that they were not public records. She explained, we can share immediate facts and circumstances of this case, which are contained in press release links which I've provided for you. On July 11th, the Quad City Times reported that McClung was directly asked whether the gun used in the death of Anthony Sherwin matched the one used to slay the members of the Schmidt family, but she again did not respond. Other controversial statements include one from Assistant Director Mordvet just before the Schmidt family autopsies were released. He said, Investigators are aware of a possible motive, but will not release it publicly. Police have declined to answer any questions and have not publicly released any additional information since August 4th, 2022. Now, in conclusion, for the Sherwins, the most important question is maybe, is it without a doubt that Anthony committed these heinous crimes against the Schmids? What evidence has been released publicly or privately to prove this? 
If Anthony is not responsible, then who the heck is? Who is the man in black? Why is law enforcement refusing to release certain information, especially to the deceased's own family? What the hell was Cecilia saying on that 911 call? These aren't horrible questions to ask, but at this time, there aren't any answers to unequivocally satisfy all of these loose ends. The police say their evidence shows Anthony to be the sole perpetrator, that he committed this killing spree alone. So, who was the intended victim, and did he anticipate the family waking up? He must have. Regardless of his original intentions, there isn't much one can do to a family of four sleeping in a single tent without waking them. Had Anthony planned to murder the family quietly and for no other reason than to see if he could get away with it? Was he just desperate to try out his alleged ghost gun? While I was researching this and trying to think of a reason for someone to want to have an untraceable gun, it's hard not to immediately jump to like murder or drug deals or something more nefarious. But then why would he also need to stab the victims too? Or strangle a defenseless child? These are questions that are really hard to wrap your mind around and sometimes the human psyche is just something we really can't understand. In closing for this story, Rob Green is the Cedar Falls mayor, along with the Schmidt's friend and neighbor. He delivered a heartfelt speech in the center of the city's park. Framed photos of the Schmidt family were placed before the podium and more than 200 people attended the ceremony. There really isn't a whole lot of great news to report on something like this. It's also brutally, well, brutal. So we'll end with this. Arlo Schmidt is being raised by his parents' families, and he's reportedly healthy, happy, and loved. Sometimes the best thing you can hope for. Last year, a GoFundMe was created by his cousin, Beth Shapiro, and it had collected over $40,000 to help Arlo. The money is being invested towards his future education, and at the time of researching this case, it has accumulated well over $293,000. Well, Swamp Folk, that's gonna do it today for this story at the Makokota Caves State Park. What did you think of these murders? Are you leaning towards any particular theory? Definitely let me know your thoughts down in the comments. I'd love to get a nice conversation going about this story. If you're still undecided like myself, I hope you found it interesting and maybe learned something along the way. If you didn't, hey, there's always next time. For now, I'd sure be appreciative if you stuck to our usual arrangements, slapped around that like button a little bit, subscribed if you're new because I upload brand new videos almost every single day, and be sure that you leave a nice comment down below because if you don't, Shrek is going to come and blister up my booty. So if you want me to be able to sit down for the next couple of days and record some stories, you know what to do. Today's episode was written by my good friend, Amanda Jane. She has a YouTube channel you can find with the link in the description. It would mean so much to me and of course them if you would check out their channel. They narrate horror stories, write their own stories from time to time, and help the swamp with scripts like this. In 1977, two Yale University students, Terry Gents and Avra Goldman, planned to spend their summer cycling across the United States. But their trip came to a premature and traumatic end when they were attacked by an unknown axe or hatchet man while camping at Klein Falls State Park. The police failed to make an arrest, so years later, Terry decided to investigate for herself. So, what happened, you may ask? And did Terry find her attacker? Stay with me in the swamp and let's find out. 
Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing the sad and absolute tragic story of the Klein Falls Axe Attack. Now this is definitely a little bit different from my typical video that I'd be covering when it comes to wilderness crime, but this story when I found it was definitely one that I thought you guys had to hear. So sit back, relax, and get ready for one hell of a story. The Trans-America Trail leads from the east coast of the United States to the west. Although some people like Terry Gents and Ava Goldman opt to travel west to east. The length of the trail varies depending on your route, but most sources claim it's somewhere around 4,200 miles, with adventurers completing an average of 200 miles per day. Less experienced hikers might be traveling around 60 to 80 miles each day. Originally, the trail started in eastern Tennessee, but over time, it became more common to ride from Yorktown in Virginia to Astoria in Oregon, or vice versa. Those undertaking the trail can experience breathtaking United States landmarks including Yellowstone National Park, the Cascade Mountains, the deserts of Utah, the Rocky Mountains, and Sawtooth National Forest, to name a few. The trail is mostly off-road, offering riders clean air and scenic views, but it's not ideal for beginners. Depending on weather and location, adventurers might come up against snow, rocky terrain, mud, and challenging desert landscapes. However, in 1976, 4,000 riders of varying ability attempted the trail to celebrate America's 200th birthday. Following the Declaration of Independence in 1776, a group of experienced cyclists started planning the route in 1973. The idea came to them while traveling from Alaska to Argentina, but the 1976 event dubbed Bike Centennial was attended by many inexperienced riders using budget-friendly equipment. Half of those that started the trail didn't complete it, but even so, a year later in 1977, it seemed a manageable undertaking for new riders following the success of Bike Centennial. Terry, Avra, and a group of their college friends decided to take on the Trans-America Trail after overhearing someone who had taken part in Bike Centennial raving about their incredible experience. However, one by one, the friends dropped out or changed their minds for various reasons until only Terry and Avra were left. Although, they had planned to go as part of a larger group and their safety in numbers, they didn't want to cancel their trip and miss out on an exciting adventure. Terry and Avra were dorm mates and inseparably close friends, so they felt comfortable enough with each other to travel as a pair. And unfortunately, as we have come to find in many of these mysteries on the Swamp Dweller channel, this doesn't really turn out to be the best case scenario. But we're going to move on to the practice run that they tried. Neither Terry nor Avra were experienced cyclists at all. So they decided to do a practice run by taking a weekend trip to northern New Haven. This gave them an opportunity to experience cycling long distance before committing to that actual 80-day, 4,200-mile Trans-American trail trip. They experienced minor problems on the New Haven trip. For example, the chain on Terry's bike kept coming off, but they were still both enthusiastic about undertaking the long summer trip when they made it to their campsite. However, I think in hindsight, their New Haven trip could be seen as an eerie foreshadow of events to come because they were harassed by a drunken man shortly after arriving at the campground. They decided to put up their tent with the door facing the woods as opposed to the clearing in hopes that this would make it more difficult for the creepy man to find the zip if he were to return with sinister intentions. 
As they feared, they were disturbed in the night when somebody aggressively shook their tent. They yelled at the intruder to leave them alone and to go away, and the person did eventually leave without getting inside of the tent. It might have been the drunken man from earlier, but they didn't see the nighttime invader, so it could have honestly been anybody else. They didn't want to let this bad experience stop them from taking their summer trip, but they decided to err on the side of caution by camping only at official campsites where they were likely to see other campers and have some sort of safety net. They also planned to avoid camping close to roads where passing cars would be able to see their tent. They really were trying to put their brains together and think every possible thing through so they weren't caught off guard at any point. Now, as summer begins, they begin by traveling to Astoria by bus in Oregon to start the Trans-America Trail. Terry and Avra got to talking to Mark and Kathy, a married couple who were also headed to Astoria to cycle the trail. When they got off the bus, Terry and Avra went ahead because Mark and Kathy's bikes had got lost during their travels. But Mark and Kathy were more experienced riders, so they caught up with the girls the next day. Terry and Avra broke their own rules by camping near roads and at non-official campsites when they were with Mark and Kathy because they felt safer in a group of four. However, a week into the trip, Terry and Avra were starting to struggle, and they were worried about holding the couple back. So, on June 22nd, they agreed to split up and meet again the following day. Because Terry and Avra were going to spend the night without Kathy and Mark, it was important to them to camp at an official campsite. They cycled to Klein Falls Park, where their guidebook claimed overnight camping was permitted, but when they got there, they found signs saying that the park was for daytime use only. Klein Falls State Park, also known as Klein Falls State Scenic Viewpoint, is a nine-acre park located on the Deschutes River, approximately four miles west of Redmond, Oregon. Terry and Avra considered cycling another ten miles to the campsite in Redmond, where they knew Mark and Kathy were staying. But they were tired of a day of cycling, and exhaustion created tensions between them. Avra was keen to go on to Redmond, whilst Terry wanted to stay at Klein Falls. Avra eventually relented, and they set up camp near the river. They faced the door of their tent towards the river for safety, hoping this would confuse any intruders. Terry and Avra confessed to each other that they felt uneasy and sensed that they were being watched. But they discarded their concerns because there was no visible reason to feel unsafe. They had friendly conversations with other park visitors, and everything seemed fine. Before turning in for the night, though, Terry watched young drivers cruising in the parking lot drifting to show off to their friends. She went to bed shortly after these drivers left the park. Now, this is where things really take a turn for the worse. Terry woke abruptly in pain and quickly realized she was pinned down by a heavyweight. She could barely move. The sides of her tent were flattened and it dawned on her that she was trapped beneath a car or truck. Imagine the terror and the bewilderment of waking up from a deep sleep to find yourself underneath a vehicle. I mean, honestly, that sounds like even worse than any horror movie I've seen. Like, even worse than that horror movie Rubber, where it's literally like a tire that murders people. But anyways, Terry's first thought was that the kids from earlier who were messing around in the parking lot, you know, popping wheelies and donuts, she thought that they must have returned and accidentally driven over their tent somehow. She did hear a car door open and then one lone person got out. Then... Avra was screaming at someone to leave her alone, followed by seven thuds. Avra fell silent. Terry listened as footsteps returned to the vehicle. The truck drove forward, relieving the pressure on Terry's chest. 
but before she knew it, she was experiencing immense pain in her head and arms and she realized she was being repeatedly hit with something. She was able to see her attacker now that the vehicle was no longer above her. He had an axe or a hatchet in his hands. She was unable to see his face in the darkness, but she could see his body. He was smartly dressed, wearing cowboy boots and a clean plaid shirt tucked neatly into his jeans, standing with one leg on either side of Terry's body as he slowly lowered the weapon into her chest. She grabbed it and pushed it away. She begged the man to take anything he wanted, but please leave her alone. He slowly retracted his weapon, returned to his vehicle, and drove away. Terry heard Avra moaning and found her friend by the river. Avra had suffered horrific head trauma. The injury was so severe that part of her brain was visible. Terry knew she had to get help. She put in her contact lenses with bloody hands, which caused her to see the world through her own red fingerprints. There was nobody nearby because the park was day use only, as we mentioned before. She went to her bike intending to ride to the next town, but she struggled to unlock her bike from the picnic table. She had chained it there earlier for obvious security purposes, and because of her injuries, she had wounds from the hatchet all over her, plus several broken bones from the car running her over earlier. Her upper body, remember, had been completely crushed by this vehicle. Miraculously though, Terry saw a truck approaching in the distance. She worried it might be the attacker returning, but Avra needed urgent medical attention, so she knew she had to take the chance. She waited for help and the truck pulled over and she was relieved to find two teenagers inside. The teenagers, Bill Penhollow and Boo Isaac, sometimes also referred to as Darlene Gervais, happened to be driving through the park. They were shocked by the extent of Terry's injuries. They described her as being drenched in blood from head to toe to the point it was dripping from the ends of her hair. They loaded the two women and their belongings into the truck. While they were doing this, a vehicle with glaring headlights stopped nearby. Bill recalled it as a truck, whilst Boo was adamant about it being a car. They were terrified the attacker had returned, but whoever it was, they drove away. It is possible the attacker came back, but left after seeing Terry and Avra had found help. But I guess we'll never truly know at this point. Bill and Boo took Terry and Avra to the St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. Terry had broken ribs and a broken arm and multiple gashes from the axe or hatchet that needed stitches. She also needed a blood transfusion and surgeries to her shoulder, nose, and forearm. Avra had a skull fracture and was rushed into theater. She survived but was left partially blind. Avra has no memory of the attack. Terry, on the other hand, was able to remember the incident in disturbing detail. She described her attacker to the police as a young man around her age. Although she didn't see the vehicle, she thought it was a truck from the engine noise and because the driver sounded like he was stepping down from a height greater than a car. She said her attacker was probably 5'10 or 5'11, but not fit or muscular. Unfortunately, even after hypnotherapy, she was unable to recall the man's face. Unfortunately, as we've come to find in a lot of wilderness crimes on this channel, the police didn't really find much evidence at the scene aside from tire tracks. Both rear tires and one front tire appeared to be bald or partly bald, whilst the other front tire had a distinctive tread. Several witnesses reported seeing a man loitering in the park. He was wearing a plaid shirt and driving a red truck with Washington plates. The person was never identified. At one point, a man in police custody for another crime confessed to the Klein Falls attack, but a polygraph test suggested he was confessing to a crime he had not committed. 
and the police had no evidence or any reason to believe this man was responsible. Terry and Avra grew gradually distant from each other over time to the point where they sadly were no longer friends. They both eventually returned to Yale and later graduated, and they spoke occasionally during this time. But their relationship was never truly the same. Some people felt the Oregon police didn't do enough to find Terry and Avra's attacker. Eventually, the case was pretty much discarded because the statute of limitations for attempted murder in Oregon at the time was only three years. This meant that even if a new suspect came to light, they wouldn't be able to prosecute. Fortunately, there is now a no limitation of attempted murder. Officially, this case remains unsolved. Nobody has ever been charged with the attempted murder of Terry or Avra, and we might never know for certain who was responsible. However, Terry investigated the case herself, writing a book in the process, and she believes she knows the identity of her attacker. Terry started her research by reading the police report of the investigation. She was disappointed to find that there were probably maybe 30 pages in total. The report mentioned two possible suspects, men who in separate incidents had attacked female hitchhikers not far from Klein Falls. Yet, there was nothing in the report that suggested either of these men were fully investigated regarding the attack on Terry and Avra. The report named Richard Wayne Godwin as the prime suspect. After the attack on Terry and Avra, Godwin was imprisoned for the assault and murder of a five-year-old child whose skull he had used as a uh, candle holder. An inmate serving time at the same prison claimed Godwin admitted to the Klein Falls attack. Some of the information Godwin allegedly gave this inmate relating to the violent crimes turned out to be correct, actually. But Godwin had an alibi for some of the additional crimes the inmate accused him of, and he passed a polygraph test when asked about the Klein Falls attack. This suggests Godwin may not have been responsible. Godwin was known to target children, after all. So an attack on adult women seems somewhat unlikely, but it's not impossible. He was also 5'6", 32 years old at the time of the Klein Falls attack, and of scruffy appearance. This is a stark contrast to the tall, young, and smartly dressed cowboy Terry remembers. Godwin's wife said her husband never dressed as a cowboy, and one of the main reasons Godwin was a suspect is because of his niece, who he had been accused of molesting. There is a running theory that he mistook Terry and Avra's tent for his nieces that he thought was apparently supposed to be staying at Klein Falls Park that night as well, and she was the initial intended to target. His niece was one of the witnesses who reported seeing the man with the plaid shirt and red truck lurking in the park. She later confirmed this man was not her uncle, and to her knowledge, her uncle had not been in the park that night. She also claimed that he never touched her or molested her or anything inappropriate, but, you know, it was a little bit too late at that point. The allegations had been made. All of this led Terry to believe Godwin was not her attacker. She also discovered another more likely suspect in this process, though. During her investigation, Terry returned to Oregon and spoke to as many people as she could, including her rescuers, Bill Penhollow and Boo Isaac. Bill's girlfriend told Terry that Dick Dam, the hatchet man, was the one who attacked her. Terry was shocked to learn there was someone known as the Hatchet Man. I mean, what the hell? And apparently locals believed he was responsible for the attack on her and Avra for all of these years, but she had never heard a word of this. They described Dam as Terry remembered, a cowboy who would have been 17 in 1977. 
Terry spoke to Dana, another witness who recalled seeing the man in the plaid shirt. She said he watched her and a friend as they swam in the park. Dana's father was a teacher. He taught Dick Dam, described him as a psycho. Dana's father also said everybody in town knew Dam attacked Terry and Avra, but nobody could actually prove it. This was understandably very confusing for Terry, as again she had never heard any of this before in all of the years since this attack. If the townsfolk knew Dam was responsible, why wasn't he an official suspect, and why was there nobody mentioning him at all in any of these police reports? As Terry continued her investigation, she learned of two rumors. One was that an axe belonging to Dam was found in the Deschutes River after the attack, the initials DD carved into the weapon. Dam was known to mark his weapons in this way. Another rumor said Dam was flaunting the axe around town, bragging about the attack. It's likely neither of these rumors are actually true, but the possibility that Dam was Terry's attacker is very real. Terry spoke to a woman named Janie, who was Dam's girlfriend at the time of the attack. She described him as a heavy drinker and violent, an abusive partner. The day after the Klein Falls attack, he beat her and almost drowned her in a pond after she threw out a bottle of his vodka. Janie told Terry she noticed his toolbox was missing. She also said she visited the scene of the attack because she suspected her boyfriend was responsible. Janie was adamant that the tire tracks at the scene matched those of Dam's truck. She apparently did report this to police, but she felt she wasn't taken very seriously. In 1995, a detective said tires weren't a match, but this opinion was based on a hand-drawn tire track from police notes that were little more than squiggles. There were rumors Dam switched the positions of his balding tires to avoid suspicions or got new ones altogether. Some people described Dam's truck as black, others said it was blue. Janie said it was two shades of blue and had like a silver trim. This led Terry to believe the lurker with the red truck wasn't the attacker and just happened to be creeping in the park that day. Terry also spoke to Dam's ex-wife Ruby as well as Kelly, another of his ex-girlfriends. Both confirmed he was abusive. He would lock Ruby out in the cold and in confined spaces. He regularly made her dig her own grave in the backyard. He even killed Kelly's pets. He told her he was innocent of the Klein Falls attacks and as a victim of cruel rumors herself, she believed him. But after learning of his true nature, she believes he is in fact very guilty. Now over the years, Dam did two polygraph tests to clear his name, however the first test was inconclusive because he was under the influence of alcohol and muscle relaxants. The first results of the second test suggested he was lying when he claimed he wasn't the attacker. The administrator recalled Dam talking like a guilty man, although he never confessed. Detectives wanted to do a third test to be sure the results weren't affected by drugs or alcohol again, but Dam threatened the police following the request for a third polygraph, and he was not home when an officer went to collect him for the test. With the statute of limitations for the crime having run out, the authorities weren't really heavily pursuing Dam as a suspect at the time. In 1996, Dam was arrested for kidnapping his 18-year-old male hunting partner. He was found not guilty of kidnap, but guilty of coercion and unlawful use of a weapon. For spectators, including Terry, it was a relief to see him finally imprisoned after his previous 19 arrest had resulted in minor or no consequences. He seemed good at wriggling out of trouble. Dam has since been arrested for crimes including harassment and DUI, but he's currently a free man as far as I know. All things considered, 
He's a possible suspect for the Kleinfalls attack and the man Terry believes assaulted her. But to play devil's advocate, she didn't see the face of her attacker. So how can she be sure it was him? That said, Dam has been described by many as a smart cowboy, and this matches the description of the individual Terry clearly remembers. There's also no doubt he's a violent man. If you'd like to learn more about this case, Terry's book, Strange Piece of Paradise, makes an interesting read. She recounts the attack and her investigation in painful detail. I also want to shout out the true crime podcast, Murder in the Rain. They dive into this case in two parts if you want to hear more. And that's going to end the Klein Falls State Park Axe Attack story for today. If there are ever any updates, I will be sure to let you know in a future video. Now, let's get into the next case for this episode. Welcome back, Swamp Folk. Hope everyone's doing okay today, and hopefully everyone's feeling well and is ready for another strange mystery. Does anyone else feel like it's been too long since we've had a good old-fashioned alien story on the channel? It took quite a while to find a story that I thought would be great, and it just so happens that right as I put this out, there is a new documentary about this coming out as well, so coincidence is on our side. Here I am yet again, hat in hand, ready to show you something very interesting. CBC News dubbed this as Canada's most documented UFO case. I know aliens are usually lumped in with either science fiction, horror, or government conspiracy theories, but they really are a category unto themselves. I'm not trying to say they are definitely UFOs out there circling the planet or anything, I'm just trying to say that statistically speaking, it's not that crazy to think that there might be other life forms out there somewhere. Sure, our solar system only has eight planets, or nine if you refuse to let go of Pluto, but we're only one of thousands of solar systems within the Milky Way galaxy. There are an estimated 100 billion planets in our galaxy alone, and based on mapping and simulations, Scientists theorize that one in five stars, like our sun, should have an Earth-like planet in its orbit. That comes to 40 billion total. But don't forget, that's only our galaxy, and our understanding of our galaxy. That doesn't include the hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there. So yeah. Now, I have my own controversial theories on everything. I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that Earth is so special that aliens are here and just here, but, you know, maybe they are in contact with us, maybe not. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Is life a simulation? Is the sky actually blue? Is the grass actually green? I don't know. You tell me. Normally, when someone claims to see a UFO, they're treated as a fraud or a lunatic. To an extent, that's also true of today's case. But this one is far from typical. Whether it was a genuine UFO experience, a government experiment, or a straight-up hoax is for you to decide. But first, let me tell you just a little bit about Falcon Lake. It's a beautiful area located in Manitoba's White Shell Provincial Park on the Trans-Canada Highway near the Ontario border. It's a very popular getaway for locals and tourists alike. Park has campgrounds, cottages, picnic areas, all that good stuff. 
Now, it didn't quite have the same level of amenities in the 1960s that it does now, but it was still a hotspot for nature lovers. Some people even staked claims in the area to prospect for precious metals. That's what brought Stephen McCallick to Falcon Lake on May 20th, 1967. After World War II, Stephen McCallick and his wife moved from Poland to Canada, where Stephen found work as an industrial mechanic, and he also fancied himself as an amateur geologist. He regularly traveled to Falcon Lake in search of quartz and silver, knowing the quartz veins in that area often yielded gold and nickel. It was while he inspected one of these veins that he suddenly heard a flock of agitated geese. When he looked up, he saw two objects with reddish glows hovering roughly 150 feet away. His quoted description of the crafts were, Cigarette-shaped things with humps in the middle. At first, he believed them to be experimental American aircraft. But then, one of the objects landed on a nearby rocky platform and shifted into a disc shape, while the other hovered nearby for several minutes before flying away. The landed craft remained in front of Stephen for roughly 30 minutes, and during that period, he was able to draw a sketch. Its dimensions were approximately 34 feet long by 15 feet tall, and its color alternated between gray and red. The surface resembled hot, stainless steel and emanated a warm, golden glow that smelled of sulfur. There were also sounds of a whirring motor and the hissing noise of air being expelled. Once finished with the sketch, Stephen dared to venture closer in search of an insignia, but he saw none. He did note that the smooth, metallic surface lacked any seams, but after a few moments of standing there, a door lined with bright light slowly opened. He heard two distinct but muffled voices coming from the inside and he believed they sounded human, one voice being notably higher than the other. Assuming that the Americans were experiencing some sort of mechanical malfunction, McCallick called, Come on out, Yankee boys, and offered his assistance. This instantly silenced the other voices and, when there was no response, Stephen merely tried speaking in Polish, then Russian, and finally German. Man, you gotta love this guy. He thought a secret government aircraft landed right in front of him. So what does he do? First he sketches it, and then he decides, oh, let's see if we can actually help these fellas out. That's brave, or maybe stupid. It depends on how you look at it. When you think it belongs to the US or Canada, that's iffy. But I see how some might feel at ease, but this guy, he was even willing to bet on the Russians in the 1960s. I want whatever he was on, that's all I'm saying. Anyway, he didn't let a lack of response get him down. No, sir. He put on his welding gloves and goggles and walked inside. Then he saw light beams and panels flashing in different colors. The craft itself seemed empty, but when he tried to walk away, three panels slid shut to trap him inside. When he touched one, it was hot enough to melt the fingertips of his gloves. The craft then turned counterclockwise to reveal a new panel. This one had a grid of holes that blasted McCallick in the chest with heated gas and threw him backwards out of the craft. His clothes were on fire, and he tore the burning items from his body as the strange craft flew away. The experience left him nauseous and he vomited, 
multiple times as he fled the area. Some sources say he also saw pink dots in his vision. This all left him too disoriented to find his way, so knowing the road was to the southeast, he then tried using his compass, but the needle went haywire. Thankfully, he did eventually locate the road, but he wasn't home free quite yet. Constable G.A. Soltke, a police officer, happened to notice the frazzled man and believed him to be drunk, but there was no smell of alcohol. So, the officer claimed he wanted to help Stephen get to Falcon Beach for medical treatment, but said his offer was declined. Yet, Stephen said the officer was dismissive and refused to help. To be fair, I can see how one might be dismissive of someone claiming to have been inside of a UFO, but this was still a disturbed man who was clearly alone and in need of help. They were essentially in the middle of nowhere. McCallick did eventually make his way back to the motel where he spoke to the owner about seeing a doctor, but the only doctor was unavailable at the time. That sounds like some Andy Griffith stuff right there, but I guess it is the 1960s, so we'll let it slide this time. With no other options available, Stephen returned to his room where he called his wife. He said there he had had an accident and that he was returning home on a Greyhound the following day. His son later picked him up from the bus station and drove him directly to Misericordia Health Center where he was admitted to the emergency room. The burns on his chest and stomach matched the pattern he described as being on the exhaust panel and though he was soon released from the hospital, he continued to suffer from nausea, diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, weight loss, and, well, some sources even say he also emitted a sulfuric smell. I like to think most of us wouldn't have gone into the mystery aircraft in the first place, but I guess if you had, what the hell would you do next? Upon his release, McCallick sold his story to the Winnipeg Tribune, which published his experience under the heading, I Was Burned by a UFO. And later that same year, he published his own manuscript with Oz Nova Publications titled, My Encounter with the UFO. Sadly, Stephen's ongoing symptoms eventually forced him to seek treatment at the Mayo Clinic. There, they determined he was sound of mind and concluded his physical condition was consistent with radiation poisoning, but his test results came back negative. Altogether, he lost 13 pounds, and his lymphocyte count dropped to almost lethal levels. He was once quoted as saying that the burns returned in the same pattern every three months until the day he died in 1999. Never once did he doubt his encounter was something otherworldly, and he passed that belief on to his youngest son. Stan was only 10 years old at the time, but he eventually appeared in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries to discuss the events from his perspective. Now let's rewind just enough to discuss how authorities handled Stephen's claims. As we know, his supposed incident happened on May 20th, 1967, and every article tells the story just a little bit differently. It's normal to have minor discrepancies in the finer details, but this one is worse than usual. Thankfully, we can rely on the lovely six-page police report that someone was kind enough to upload. It's dated June 26, 1967, and it was written by Sergeant Davis. It's not written in chronological order, 
but we're going to discuss it in chronological order to the best of our abilities because we are not savages. On May 26th, Constable Schmalz advised that he spoke to the motel's cafe and beverage manager. According to this unnamed witness, McCallick stayed in room 17 on May 19th and between the hours of 8 and 9.30 p.m. he drank three bottles of beer in the motel's beverage room. I guess that's what they called motel bars back in the 1960s. Stephen was set to have left the motel at approximately 9.30 and he returned an hour later, sometime around 11, at which point he drank two more beers. The manager said he was not too terribly drunk or maybe not even drunk at all when he left, nor did he purchase alcohol to take back to his room. In Stephen's interview, he claimed to have left the motel at roughly 6am on the morning of May 20th and his timeline was corroborated by the maid who cleaned his empty room at 7.30 that same morning. Mrs. Bweck, the motel owner, told police she saw Stephen between 3 and 4 p.m. on the 21st. This is when he approached her stating that he was in need of a doctor. Since there was apparently no doctor available, she referred him to the police. McCallick left and later returned asking to make a collect call to Winnipeg, at which he was directed to a phone booth outside. Nearly everyone he spoke to that day said he behaved as if he were intoxicated, but not a single one could say they smelled booze on him. On May 27th, Davis questioned Stephen about his alcohol consumption and he denied having anything to drink on the night in question. There was also a discrepancy in the cafe manager's timeline. He claimed to have seen McCallick at 8pm, but that simply wasn't possible. Stephen traveled the Falcon Lake by bus and he didn't even begin his two-hour journey until 715 at the earliest, he would have arrived at around 9.15 to 9.30 that night. In Stephen's version of events, he was in his room until after 11pm when he went to the beverage room for a burger and coffee. Later, Davis arranged for the manager to see McCallick in person, and he confirmed it was the same man he served beer to on May 19th. The beverage room was busy that night, so the manager admitted he could have been mistaken about the time but he was adamant that Stephen drank the beer. McCallick was later confronted with the manager's accusation, but he continued to insist that he didn't drink. Davis states that he and squadron leader Bisky were in daily contact with Stephen during the period of May 26th to May 30th. Each day they hoped that he would feel well enough to come up and search for the supposed landing site. On May 30th, the two men drove to Stephen's home in Winnipeg where he drew them a map of the landing site. Bisky was then able to coordinate with the Canadian Army to obtain the use of a Hillier helicopter for the following morning. They argued this to be the best course of action due to the possibility of vegetation growth concealing the site. This risk grew more likely with each passing day and investigators were desperate to win the race against Mother Nature. On the morning of May 31st, David and Constable Anderson drove to Falcon Lake where they met with Bisky and other Canadian Air Force personnel. At noon, another Army helicopter joined the search, but even with Stephen's map, the search efforts were pretty much fruitless. His instructions were to look for a flat piece of rock 300 feet long and 100 feet wide, which should have been doable, 
Rocks that large are very rare at Falcon Lake, but once again the search was called off as night drew near. Ultimately, it was decided all efforts to locate the supposed landing site should be futile without Stephen there to point them in the right direction. Davis and Anderson drove the two hours back to Winnipeg that very evening, and this time Stephen felt well enough to join them. The three men left for Falcon Lake early on the morning of June 1st. In an earlier interview, McCallick recalled walking a little over 3,000 paces to reach the highway after he saw the craft. This was estimated to mean that he couldn't have traveled more than two and a half to three miles before reaching the road, so the air search covered about a four to five mile area. Shortly after their arrival, Stephen was taken up in a helicopter, but he wasn't able to recognize any landmarks from the air. Everything looked too different. That afternoon, they changed tactics. Davis and Anderson escorted Stephen to the area where his shopping bags and saw were previously located, and they managed to cover between three and four miles before nightfall. Yet, they still found nothing of significance. This was actually the first and only mention I saw of the gloves and saw, so now that you know what I know, we can move on to the next section. Davis felt that McCallick was wandering around aimlessly without any real sense of where he was going. When questioned about this, he claimed he had been following quartz veins in the rock facings while prospecting and wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. Despite these initial difficulties, Stephen insisted he would find the site, and he appeared disgusted with himself for not having already found it. The search came to an end in the early evening, and McCallick was home by 10 that night. Davis and Anderson returned to Falcon Lake that following morning and resumed their search with assistance from Air Force personnel. This time they expanded the radius even further, but they still came up empty-handed. The effort was officially called off that afternoon on June 2nd at 2pm. On Saturday, June 3rd, the head of the United States UFO Project at the University of Colorado, Dr. Roy Craig, came to conduct his own investigation of the possible UFO sighting. He spent the first day interviewing Stephen and Sunday was spent exploring Falcon Lake. The doctor was initially impressed with McCallick during the interview, but when they actually got to the lake, he began having doubts. As he did when searching with the police, Stephen was stumbling around without any real sense of as to where he was going. On June 6th, Dr. Craig contacted Davis with a request for additional information he might have, and the men did meet, but it didn't seem Craig learned anything new with his troubles. On June 8th, Squadron Leader Biskey and other Air Force personnel flew to Falcon Lake to examine a microwave tower after it was speculated that McCallick might have climbed it for an eagle-eye view of the terrain. If he did, some thought it was possible he might have been burned by the electricity at the top, but Biskey concluded that this would have been highly unlikely. The tower was approximately one mile north and east of Falcon Motel, and in that same vicinity he found a spot that looked very much like the sketch Stephen gave the police. They thoroughly searched the area but found no evidence whatsoever. They informed McCallick of this location, but at the time of the report, Stephen had not been able to look at the site himself. I saw no further mention of this area, so it's likely he either didn't go or he couldn't find it very familiar. With this, the Air Force considered the matter closed pending the discovery of new evidence. 
The only thing they had that could technically be counted as evidence besides the shopping bags and saw was Stephen's burned welding gloves. He welcomed the police to perform any test they'd like, and it was in turn passed along to Brisky. That about does it for the actual investigation portion of the report, though. But the last page and a half are arguably the most interesting of all. I want to read this paragraph to you. I cleaned up some of the repetitive parts to save time, but I encourage you all to read it for yourselves at a later date. In light of the increasing prevalence of UFO sightings and because there's the distinct possibility that our personnel will be the first ones approached by the observer, I have obtained a copy of the Air Force's instructions on how to deal with UFO reports. It covers what information should be obtained from the observer and how the report should be channeled. It's not surprising to hear that there was an increase in sightings after Stephen's story gained international notoriety. Such is the way, but hearing it in such an official capacity adds a healthy dollop of realness to it all, don't you think? The instructions were brief enough to include in the report, which means I can read them to you right now. Now this is the official two-step process according to Canadian Air Force bases and other forces at the time the first section says, Reports of UFOs are frequently received at Canadian Force bases from various sources. Canadian Forces Headquarters is responsible for processing any action required regarding the report. The report should be transmitted to Headquarters in accordance with Section 2. Section 2 says, Unclassified priority messages should be addressed to Canforce HED and the first words in the text should be for CFOC UFO report. All reports should include as much of the following information as possible. A. Date and time of sighting. B. Sky conditions. C. Observer's identity. D. Observer's location. E. Identification of any other witnesses. F. Description of the object. G. Duration of the sighting. And H any other relevant information. This form was published by the Royal Canadian Air Force on October 7th, 1966. And that, my friends, is how the Canadians handled UFO sightings in the 60s. The Central Forces Headquarters would assess these reports to determine whether or not further investigation was required, and if it was, they would pass the information along to the closest Air Force unit to make the necessary inquiries. Now, there are a few inconsistencies that I wanted to mention before we conclude the story of Stephen McCallick. You'll notice the police report stated the supposed landing site was never found, but most articles are actually saying otherwise. Some say a perfect circle of burned vegetation was found when Stephen returned to Falcon Lake with the police, while others say he found it with a friend while exploring on their own weeks after the fact. Some say the circle was 15 feet in diameter, while others say it was actually 30 feet wide. As far as I can tell, this is just how urban legends begin, but who knows. Maybe there was a crop circle, but the government decided to cover it up. That's not the only supposed evidence found that was never mentioned in the official report. Some articles also mentioned pieces of melted radioactive metal were found along with high levels of radioactive elements in the soil and Stephen's clothing. 
but this was ultimately concluded to be the result of radium veins that happened to be nearby. Or is that what they want us to think? Most articles did agree that initial theories concluded our man was merely hallucinating due to alcohol consumption, but most of the official investigations ended with inconclusive results. No one could definitively say or explain how McCallick's physical wounds and symptoms occurred. Skeptics tend to conclude Stephen's injuries did indeed result from some sort of drunken stupor, but I failed to find any explanations as to how, and I for the life of me can't seem to come up with my own theories of how he could have done this. As to why he might do such a thing, um, I don't really know. It would not only conceal the true cause of his injuries, assuming that's something he'd want to hide, he could possibly dissuade competing prospectors from staking their own claims on veins in the area. Of course, this would have the opposite effect as hordes of investigators, reporters, and members of the public flocked to the scene. There were a few attempts to explain Stephen's health conditions with an allergic reaction, but I can't get behind that one honestly. The science seems a bit, um, iffy. I find it difficult to believe allergies are the answer. Even if the initial wounds were so easily explained, I've never heard of an allergic reaction resulting in years of serious health concerns Stephen ultimately experienced. Have you? Now, I did try to check around for some other similar sightings that were supposedly occurring at the time, but I only really found two other ones. Back then, it was fairly common for locals to still visit the garbage dump just to watch bears rummage for food, apparently. One night, a server from the hotel went there with her boyfriend, and on the drive home, a silver object appeared in the sky. It followed them for some time, but her boyfriend was able to speed up, and they made it safely into town. The server was living in the hotel's staff accommodations, and this experience rattled her so badly that she refused to leave her room for the following day. Sometime later, the hotel's owner's son, Steve Busick, received a strange call from a friend's brother. Bob and Bill said they could hear an electronic sound coming from the woods near the home of Penguin Resort. Steve walked down by the road to check it out, and when he came to the final hill, he heard it clear as day, a steady beeping sound. It almost sounded like it had some sort of pulsating influence to it, like it was coming from the trees. The three young men ventured into the woods with their flashlights, but the source seemed to be coming from everywhere all at once. The next day, Steve spoke with a local trapper who was somewhat of an expert on the unusual. When Steve told him about the electronic beeping, he laughed and said it was probably only a saw-wet owl. All I can say is that it must be one strange owl sound if it was some sort of electronic pulsating sound. Or could this have been related to the Stephen McCallick experience? I don't know, and we'll probably never know for sure. So, ultimately Swamp Folk, what do you guys think? Is there a theory you agree with, or do you have your own? Have any of you ever visited Falcon Lake yourself? I would love to hear about any personal experiences you may have, and be sure to let me know if you want to learn more about UFO sightings. It's interesting to note that Falcon Lake isn't terribly far from Washington's border, which does happen to be one of the highest number of UFO sightings in our country, coincidence or something more i don't know we'll discuss that in another video it was really fun to cover one of these i haven't done one of these in a couple of years i think the last one i did was a case where a bunch of illinois police officers were allegedly chasing down a ufo 
And then the one I did before that was the strange and infamous case of the war minster thing. You can find both of those on my channel. I'm definitely looking to cover more stuff like this, so definitely put your suggestions down below. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to slap that like button for me as it really helps the channel grow. If you're new, be sure to subscribe and be sure to turn on those notifications as I upload brand new videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural and you're not going to want to miss them. If you have a personal experience that you would like to share on the podcast in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or on reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I would love to share your story with everyone else here in the swamp. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to comment down below the code word of the day, which is backflipping UFO. I love to see how many people get up to the end, and it's also fun to see the funny comments you all make. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. Welcome back, Swamp Folk. Once again, we are crossing into international waters to bring you the darkest wilderness content available. More specifically, we're taking a trip down under to Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria, Australia where we'll learn about the mystery that is Patrick Hildebrand. Don't worry, we aren't messing with any of those giant spiders today, at least none that we know about. But the case is unsolved, so you never know. Now, most of you have probably never heard the name Patrick Hildebrand, and that's completely fine, as I have not either before looking into this case. But just know if you like puzzles, you'll love this episode. But before we dive into this case and the strange details around it, let me tell you about Wilson's Promontory. Any national park in Australia will be beautiful, but this one in particular has a fascinatingly rich history. We can spend 20 minutes alone on it, but I'll stick with a summary. The indigenous Koori people occupied this land at least 6,500 years ago before the first Europeans arrived and it's considered to be home of the Bratuilung clan spiritual ancestor Lu Ern. Even today, this area remains highly significant to their descendants. The first Europeans didn't come along until 1798 and for parts of the 19th century, the promontory was used for seal hunting and shore-based whaling. This carried devastating consequence for local wildlife, so in the 1880s and 1890s, a public campaign was waged to turn these areas into a national park which was made official in 1898. Before the first road was completed in the 1930s, the promontory was only accessible by boat and during World War II, they closed it to the public entirely to use the park as a commando training ground. In 2005, a fire started by the staff got out of control and burned 13% of the park. However, it was deemed necessary to evacuate campers. This incident was nothing compared to 2009 when a lightning strike near Sealers Cove started a fire that burned 62,000 acres. If this weren't devastating enough, it happened on February 8th, the day after Black Saturday. For those unfamiliar, Black Saturday was the day an intense heat wave, combined with arson and faulty electrical infrastructure, led to hundreds of brush fires throughout Victoria. 
The fire stopped just a half a mile away from Wilson's Promontory's only community, Tidal River. Its camping area and park headquarters were left unaffected luckily, and they could reopen just a month later. If fires weren't enough to deal with, March 2011 brought enough rainfall to cause major flooding and the bridge over Darby River became severely damaged. This left Tidal River camping area inaccessible by vehicle for quite some time, and visitors were evacuated by helicopter over the following days. In Easter of 2012, before all the repairs were finally completed, well, that's Australia for you, am I right? Maybe we should find more of these, but before you decide, let's talk about Patrick Hildebrand first. I think you'll find this case as interesting as I do. In 1987, Patrick Hildebrand was nine years old and living in Dandenong, Victoria, with his mother, Christine, and two brothers. One of these brothers, Joe Hildebrand, actually grew up to become a journalist who has worked for several Australian publications and news outlets. He had a remarkable career, but most notable to our story is when he joined the morning show, Studio 10, from the years 2013 to 2020. While there, he interviewed with co-host Sarah Harris to discuss the tragedy of losing his little brother at such a young age. He describes their father as a globe-trotting, troubadour hippie who left town to be with another woman when Joe was six and Patrick was four. This had a significant impact on the family. Not only had he left their home, but he had also left their lives. If raising three children as a single mother wasn't tricky enough, Patrick suffered from a severe developmental delay and had epilepsy on top of it. While we as a society still have a long way to go with mental health care, it's treated with far more understanding today than it was in the 1980s. I also want to be clear that Joe didn't name his brother's specific diagnosis in the interview. He refers to Patrick as autistic, and it's widely speculated that he very likely was. But an article from the Daily Mail also named one of his conditions as Gestalt Syndrome. It's a form of epilepsy that seems to either have a connection with or similarity to autism. Also, remember that what we know about mental health has changed a great deal since 1987, so it's no surprise the sources don't exactly match, but what to call it isn't essential. I just want to give you a basic idea of what the Hildebrand's lives were like. According to a case study, his specific type of epilepsy, Lennox-Gestalt syndrome, means intellectual development is usually delayed and often worsens over time. Other symptoms include multiple seizures and behavioral problems such as hyperactivity, agitation, and aggression. Joe stated Patrick could be excellent one moment but suddenly suffered from a fit of anger. He once picked up an axe and swung it at his older brother, but fortunately, the strike didn't make contact. He also stated Patrick once pointed at a staticky television and said that's what it was like inside of his head. So, while it does seem to line up, please don't forget this information only applies to one type of epilepsy, a type that accounts for just 2-5% to 5 of cases among children. Like I said, I want you to understand the victim's condition, but don't take it as gospel if someone you know suffers from seizures or a mental illness. Always seek medical advice from actual professionals, okay? My expertise is in a different kind of disturbed. As for the summer Saturday that would fundamentally change the Hildebrand's lives, Patrick 
His mom, his brothers, and his cousins were wandering along the lily-pilly gully nature walk in Wilson's promontory when the nine-year-old ran around a bend and into the forest. Nature walks were one of Patrick's favorite activities, so he had been slightly ahead of the group when he suddenly took off. They were roughly ten minutes into the two-and-a-half-mile hike when this happened, and even though the others quickly followed, Patrick was never seen again. When the family initially failed to locate the young boy, they retraced their steps to the car park and drove just over three miles to the ranger's headquarters, where they were able to report him as a missing child. Rangers wasted no time embarking on a piecemeal search, but their efforts were halted on behalf of the evening fog. The following morning, the police search and rescue took over, and an entire operation was officially underway. It was one of the largest manhunts in Victoria's history, with more than 130 men and three helicopters, but for all of their efforts, investigators were never even able to definitively determine if the boy was taken or vanished on his own. I find it difficult to imagine he could have gotten lost if his family was so close behind. But we'll have to save our theories for the end. First, let's go through the entire search so you know where everything stands. The Australian Missing Persons Register is the best collection of information for this case. It has several photographs of Patrick and almost every article published since his disappearance. One clipping from 1987 brings an even more ominous tone to the case when it puts the investigators' decisions under great scrutiny. With the initial description of search efforts, it may sound like every effort was being made to locate Patrick, but this article puts that into question entirely. Their concerns can be condensed into three main issues. First is the discretion of the search in its early stages. So let's go back to those 130 volunteers for a second. They started their search from where Patrick vanished, and by that afternoon they had found a bed of ferns where Patrick's yellow hat only a few hundred yards away was found. The police then marked out a roughly one kilometer rectangle in that area encompassing these two points. Searchers went through everything inside the perimeter. They left no stone unturned in their efforts, which is actually kind of a problem unto itself as you'll soon see. This is how the rest of Sunday was spent and when the day ended, lead investigators made a critical decision that would significantly impact Patrick's case's progression. Lily Pilly Gully happens to lead down into a treacherous swamp, and it was concluded that, had Patrick indeed wandered into this area, he would already be dead. If they had any hope of finding him alive, it would be in the dry uplands. Therefore, Monday morning, lines of searchers stood at arm's length as they fanned out from the original starting point. Bushes and shrubs were flattened as they moved along the paths, marked with tape, and at night, helicopters scanned the area with heat-seeking infrared equipment. Don't forget to factor in that Patrick suffered from severe developmental conditions and seizures. These guys weren't racing a standard clock here. And even before you factor in, they were already disadvantaged, not knowing how Patrick would react under these circumstances. Authorities couldn't be sure if he would approach rescuers or hide from them. With the help of his doctor and psychiatrist, the police tried their best to make an educated guess at his probable movements since becoming lost. Ultimately, it was concluded that the boy might have been lured from the path by a butterfly or lizard, but once there, it's unlikely he would have registered the need to call for help. Instead, it's far more likely that he would have simply continued in the same direction, unaware of being lost. 
This theory factors into why the police decided to shake things up on Tuesday. Instead of continuing with the same plan, they jumped ahead of the leading search party and started lowering additional personnel into higher, more rugged terrain. This would become the second primary concern of the investigation. John Butler with emergency services offered to assist with the investigation on the day Patrick went missing, and when his offer was declined, he continued to provide his assistance each day afterward. Finally, he arrived on the scene that Friday, but once there, he told reporters that the advance bush drops put into effect on Tuesday would have been his first move. The higher-ups could have taken this comment better, and it effectively ruined any chance Butler had to participate. Afterward, he refused further remarks except that his aboriginal trackers were better suited to the task than the bushwalkers assembled by police. Though Inspector Bob Hanna defended his strategy to the bitter end, John's comment would never be forgotten in the face of failure. Finally, this brings us to our third main issue, arguably the most concerning. Whether due to his minor clash with John Butler or for other reasons entirely, officials were against full use of the state emergency services professional aboriginal trackers. The three trackers involved weren't brought in until that Friday, but... Honestly, by that point, the search efforts were reduced to only 60 men, and Inspector Hanna only had a mere 20% chance of finding Patrick alive. Most people, including Patrick's family, felt that the trackers should have been utilized from day one. Unfortunately, being so late in the game, there was little left that they could actually do. As mentioned before, previous ground search attempts left no stone unturned. Any sign that would have been there was long erased. Why did they not use the best trackers their country has to offer? Well, I keep seeing that Inspector Hanna actually had the option to use them from the beginning, yet decided to stick with tactics that had been proven successful in the past, namely search and rescue teams and the most advanced technology of the time. While present, the trackers were taken to a footprint near where the yellow hat was found, even after casts were made, it could never really be confirmed as belonging to the little boy. By Saturday morning, only 15 men were left, and by the afternoon, the search effort was called off altogether. Not everything said about the searchers was negative, though. A 2013 article from The Australian quoted a senior volunteer searcher saying, We searched so hard and for so long. People put so much effort into it. We were loaded into helicopters, winched down onto the ridge, marched down, and then winched back into the helicopter to do it all again the next day. The vegetation was incredibly thick, but the entire area was completely trampled by the fifth day. We didn't know what more we could really do, honestly. He also shared a story of a senior sergeant, saying he had a son roughly the same age as the missing boy. For years after this incident, the sergeant would still go down to search in his own time. But sadly, it seems he suffered a little bit of a breakdown due to sheer disbelief that they could not find Patrick, even after their abundant resources. Before we start pouring over the possibilities, I would like to share that Joe Hildebrand had to say on the matter. When asked what he believed, he responded, I just honestly don't know. You sort of try not to think about it. When asked if he believed in the possibility that Patrick was still alive, if he could have found his way toward a road, Joe was understandably hesitant to answer, but the few words he did say said so much. I think 
That's just probably where madness lies. Everyone grieves in their own way, and this is one of the healthier ways I've seen. So, bravo. Anyway, on to those theories. And let's start with the one most people believe. Did Patrick simply wander off on his own? Could he have been distracted by a butterfly, as officers theorized? It's a shame the trackers couldn't look over the area before it was trampled. We could have learned so much more. How did he get away that fast if he had run ahead into the woods? Well, the sad fact of this all is, it happens all the time. The wilderness can be as cruel as beautiful and doesn't play favorites. It gives and takes without prejudice or sympathy. As for wondering if Patrick would respond to searchers, if he were autistic, they tend to develop powerful interest in certain things, and if he felt this way with nature, it's feasible he could become distracted enough to not understand the consequences of venturing off or maybe not even notice his name being called at all. The Australian outback is enormous, and nine-year-old boys are typically small creatures. That's just physics. Then there's the yellow hat. It was the only sure sign of Patrick that was found during the entire search effort, and Joe said it was very special to his brother. He didn't believe Patrick would ever simply take it off and leave it there. That leaves two possibilities that I can see. One is that he may have had a seizure and become disoriented or injured himself in a fall, while the second possibility leads us to the next theory. What if he was taken? It would be straightforward to lose his hat in a struggle, but if there was a struggle, how did no one notice signs or hear his cries for help? It's hard to say if he could have been lured away. Some children, whether neurotypical or divergent, are more trusting than others. If he felt safe in the forest, he may have been more at ease than in an everyday situation. No evidence of foul play was ever discovered, but you guys know how I feel about these situations. I've said it before, and I'll say it plenty more. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. An astronomer named Carl Sagan said it first. Thanks, Carl. He wasn't even an investigator. Knowledge is power, kids. Soak it up. If someone did take Patrick, they must have been in the exact right place at the exact right time to do it. If the family never mentioned seeing anyone else in the area, and indeed that would have been notable, some wondered if family members were as close behind him as they claimed. They went on nature walks often enough, and it is reasonable to assume they felt secure with Patrick's behavior on them. But again, that's just speculation. As far as I know, the family has never fallen under suspicion, not for anything intentional or neglectful. Sometimes it's hard to accept that accidents just happen. Nine times out of ten, he would have been right around the corner as expected, but this was one of those other times. Of course, there are plenty of missing 411 speculations out there as well. The Yowie is a creature referred to as the Australian Bigfoot. Descriptions vary, but it's usually described as a hairy ape man, anywhere from 7 to 12 feet with large, flat noses, giant mouths, bat-like ears, and feet that are much larger than a human being's. Reports of its behavior also vary from timid to violent and aggressive. Personally, a creature so massive would have left footprints that would be hard to not notice by anyone. So, I'll have to respectfully disagree on this one. As much as I love an excellent Yowie story, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody's story. And with that swamp folk, that does it for this episode. So, down in the comments, let me know. What did you think of Patrick's case? 
Do you think he was a troubled child who ran off and had the worst possible luck at every turn? Was some deranged psychopath in the right place at the right time to snatch him up and make a run for it at the right moment? Or can you think of another explanation entirely? If there were underground cave systems or tunnels, I would say he could have fallen into a hole, but I just can't think of any other possibilities, at least not natural ones anyway. This is one of those instances where it truly feels like the victim vanished without a trace. Personally, this case gives me very similar vibes to the Stacy Aris case we've covered in the past. If you'd like to learn more about that one, you can find a link on screen or in the description. Anyways, let me know how you'd feel about exploring more Australian parks in another video, and please, for the love of Shrek, don't forget to make that sweet... And please, for the love of Shrek, don't forget to make that sweet clicking love to those like buttons and to subscribe so you don't miss a brand new video. Don't forget, I upload new videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to see me cover, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or in the comments down below. I'm always looking for new content. Anyways, thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp the way you do. I'll see you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all the other good social medias. And I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.